Good morning. I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. We've got a lot going on the next few weeks. Tonight there's a big concert. So not that anything else is going on in your life, but uh, we'd love to see you uh, at the Tally Ho tonight for the uh, Derek Harris and Zach Jones concert. That'd be great. Lots of folks out sick. So I know what that's like. And appreciate your patience with me not being here last week. We're in John 19, getting to the end of John 19, getting ready for Easter. And this is one of those unique passages that you read about this time every year and just kind of read over it. It's between the big events. Jesus has been crucified, but he hasn't been resurrected. And this is just like detail that's thrown in there. And we often don't read it very carefully or very closely. But we're going to do that this morning. So turn to John 19 with me, starting at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us insight this morning, wisdom and understanding to your word, that you would use your word in our lives, that you would use it to draw us closer to your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Father Maximilian Kolb was 45 years old in the early autumn of 1939, when the Nazis invaded his homeland of Poland. He was a Franciscan monk who is committed to uh, spreading God's word around the world. He was known for beginning his day uh, by sitting at his desk, a large uh, globe in front of him, praying that the gospel would be planted in each country. And when the Nazis bombed his town, he turned his church into a hospital, But it didn't last very long, for less than three weeks later, they drove up to the door of his church and arrested him. They tried to break him in the prison camps, but they found the spirit of this priest unbreakable. And so in February of 1941, Father Kolb was transferred and incarcerated at Auschwitz, one of the 
infamous concentration camps. Technically, he'd been arrested for preaching and writing unapproved materials. He'd been preaching about the cross. And in the harshness of the slaughterhouse that was Auschwitz, he maintained the gentleness of Christ. He ministered to his fellow prisoners in barracks 14 on a continual basis. He shared his food, he gave up his bunk, he prayed for his captors, and one time he was given 50 lashes for it. One night in July of that same year, a man escaped from barracks 14. The normal routine was for the escapee to be caught and then hung in front of the camp the next morning. But the man wasn't caught. And thus the commandant of the camp pronounced his sentence on the rest of barracks 14. It was the custom at Auschwitz to kill 10 prisoners for everyone who escaped. And all the prisoners would be gathered in the courtyard and uh, the commandant would randomly select 10 men from the ranks. These victims would be immediately taken to a starvation bunker where they would be locked in and they would receive no food or water until they died. And the commandant began his selection. At each selection, another prisoner steps forward to fill the sinister quota. And as the SS officers check off the numbers of the condemned, one of the condemned men just began to sob and weep. My wife and my children, he repeated over and over again. The officers turned as they heard movement in the ranks. They heard somebody walking between the prisoners. They raised their rifles. The dogs tensed, anticipating a command to attack. A prisoner has left his row and is pushing his way to the front. And it is Father Kolb. No fear in his face, no hesitancy in his step. The officers shout at him to stop or be shot. And without fear, he walks right up to the rifles. I want to talk to the commandant, he says. For some reason, the officer doesn't club him or kill him. And Kolb stops a few paces from the commandant, removes his hat, and looks the German officer in the eye. Herr Commandant, I wish to make a request, please. That no one had shot him yet was a miracle in itself. I want to die in place of this prisoner. And he points to the sobbing man. The audacious request is presented without stammer. He says, I have no wife and children. Besides, I am old and not good for anything. He's in better condition. Father Kolb knew well the Nazi mentality that they could still get work out of this other man. And the commandant looked Father Kolb in the eye. Who are you, he asked. And with a strange fire in his eye, Kolb shoots back, I am a priest. And everyone was stunned. And the commandant is uncharacteristically speechless. And after a moment, he nods, request granted. And Father Kolb takes the place of the sobbing man and is marched off with the nine other condemned men to the starvation bunker. Usually, prisoners dying without food or water spent their days howling, attacking one another, clawing the walls in a frenzy of despair. But as the hours and the days pass, the camp becomes aware of something extraordinary happening. 
Coming from the starvation bunker are sounds of singing. The men did die, one by one, but one man hung on. And finally, on August 14, 1941, the camp doctor entered the bunker and gave Father Kolb a lethal injection. And in a moment, Maximilian Kolb was dead. But the story doesn't end there. Because the man whose place he took is Francis Jehowanichek. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. He survives the Holocaust, a changed man. And he wrote of Father Kolb after the war. And he wrote, Prisoners were never allowed to speak. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? It wasn't a dream. After the war, he made his way back to his hometown. However, every year, Francis Jehowanichek goes back to Auschwitz. Every August 14th, he goes back to say thank you to the man who died in his place. And in his backyard, there is a plaque, a plaque that he carved with his own hands, a tribute to Maximilian Kolb, the man who died so he could live. There are times it takes an angel to remind us about what we have. It's a great story. It's a true story. And as I read that, I think, you know, I don't have much in common with him. There aren't many similarities between Francis Jehowanichek and Dave Silvernail. We speak two different languages. We salute two different flags. We live in two different times. We know two different homelands. But we have a couple things in common. We both had a Jewish teacher die in our place. We both learned that what we already have is far greater than anything we might want. Two weeks ago, I told you that the story in John 19, the story we see here in Scripture, is a story of passion and sacrifice. A gift given from a lover to his beloved. And one final act of sacrificial love. He offers his life so that she might live. So let's take a look once more at this sacrifice. There are several things we need to note here. And the first thing is John's reference to the Sabbath, verse 31. The Sabbath. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. This incident begins with a reference to the Jews. Now, John normally uses that phrase not to refer to all of the Jewish people, but more specifically to refer to the Jewish leaders. He's just mentioned the chief priests back in verse 21, and so it's most likely that it's this same group of people that he's referring to here, specifically the chief priests. 
And that seems to make the most sense since the chief priest would be the one who would be uh, most concerned that the Sabbath was properly observed. Notice the irony here. There's lots of irony in this passage. They have no compunction about crucifying Jesus, but they're very agitated with the possibility that bodies could remain on the cross during the Sabbath. Now, to be fair to the Jewish leaders, this is an explicit matter of Old Testament law, and they're trying to be faithful to it. Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So they're just trying to be faithful to that command. And it certainly, though, it doesn't bother the Romans to leave the crucified hanging there. I mean, they would view it as an opportunity to show the people what the penalty was for crossing them. Uh, in fact, they most often left people up there for quite a while. They wanted to make sure everybody saw. But they responded to the Jewish scruples in this matter, and they allowed the men to be removed. However, it wasn't just following mere custom here that the Jews requested the men to be taken down. Because the text tells us for that Sabbath was a high day. John appears to be telling us that while all Sabbaths are important, this Sabbath is more important than the others. And that's because this Sabbath coincided with the day of the Passover. And it is no coincidence that Jesus dies as the Passover begins. As John the Baptist told us at the very beginning of this book, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that brings us to the next verse and the first fulfillment. The first fulfillment, verse 32. It says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And then verse 36 for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Our information about this part of the crucifixion story we owe to John alone. The other evangelists don't mention the breaking of the legs, nor the spear thrust that pierced Jesus' side. But clearly this immediate sequel to the death of Jesus greatly impressed someone who was there was apparently a most unusual series of happenings. It would have been expected that Jesus' legs would have been broken just like the other two men on the other crosses. Evidently, these other two men were still alive, and it must have looked as though they wouldn't die before the Sabbath came. And if they weren't dead yet, then they couldn't be taken down before sunset when the Sabbath began. So the Jewish leaders asked, for their legs to be broken in order to hasten their death. Do you understand what's happening? The Jewish leaders are asking the Romans to kill these men quicker so they don't have to face the prospect of possibly violating the Sabbath. And this isn't a gentle exercise. They take a heavy mallet similar to a sledgehammer 
And they smash the legs, breaking the femurs, preventing the condemned men from pushing up to get a breath. They can't push up with their legs, then their weight would uh, further their suffocation. It would happen much faster. They would die much quicker. And again, do you see the irony here? The Jews are telling the Romans, in effect, your cruelty will help us maintain our purity. Please do this for us. Just a small favor. And I'm just amazed by it. They're killing their own Messiah, but they wanted to make sure they obeyed the law. Sabbath is coming at sunset. It's right around 3 o'clock. It's a few hours till sunset, and they wanted Roman permission to speed up his death, get him off the cross before a violation of the Sabbath could occur. Kill God, but protect your devotion to the Sabbath. And so the soldiers pick up their mallets and get to work. But when they come to Jesus, they find that he's already dead, and thus there's no need to break his legs. Perhaps due to his heavy scourging, he succumbed uh, much earlier than the other men. We don't really know. The text doesn't really say. But what we do know is that this unusual circumstance is foretold in the Scripture. Exodus 12, which is referring directly to the Passover lamb, says, It shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And then in Numbers 9, we read again about the Passover lamb. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. And of course, we know from 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And we also have the prophecy of Psalm 34:20, which says he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, the Jews weren't trying to fulfill prophecy by doing this. That's the last thing they wanted to do. They wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted uh, the people to see him as utterly unqualified to be the Messiah. And yet here he's fulfilling prophecy in the very act they do to discredit him. Jesus controlled his death. Jesus died at the exact moment he finished the work God had given him to do. If they had broken his legs the scripture would have been broken also, and the prophecy concerning him would have been wrong, and you could take your Bibles and throw them away. Jesus is directing every detail, even in his dying. So what does this mean? Simply, that what God says is going to happen, happens. But it doesn't end there, because John tells us of a second fulfillment. A second fulfillment, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Apparently, one of the soldiers wanted to make sure that Jesus was really dead, that they hadn't made a mistake in not breaking his legs. So he thrusts his spear into Jesus' side. The word for spear in Latin is longshe, which means a long, slender spear. The word may be the reason that the early church said the soldier's name 
was Longinus, which means our lands. Early church history tells us that Longinus was converted and in due course became a martyr for the faith. We have no way of knowing whether that's true or not. That comes from extra-biblical sources. But the belief that the soldier who pierced Christ became a martyr for Christ has lasted for two millennia. And here is another eyewitness detail showing something out of the ordinary. Soldiers didn't usually thrust spears into crucified people as they did to Jesus. And this issue of having blood and water coming out is completely unknown. There are no records of this happening to anyone else. Except we were told that it would happen. Zechariah 12.10, part of our responsive reading this morning. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And then he mentions David and the house of David and the house of Nathan and the house of Levi. It's not by accident they're mentioned. Prophet, priest, and king. David's a king, Nathan's a prophet, Levi's of the priesthood. Once again, Scripture is being fulfilled. Now, there's a huge amount of speculation over what it meant that blood and water came out of his side. Almost all of the early church fathers relate this bit of information to the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And it can be made to fit as both certainly get their meaning from the death of Jesus. But I think it's a little much to assume that the Apostle John was referring to the sacraments with these eyewitness details. It's much more likely, there's lots of medical evidence, that this is simply another means of demonstrating that Jesus had really and truly died a human death. Many early heresies argued that Jesus didn't really die or he wasn't fully human, and that rather than being resurrected from the dead, he just merely recovered from great physical suffering. And it does seem that John, writing years later, remember John's writing right around 90 A.D., and he's fighting these heresies. And so to include this detail as a way of showing that Jesus really and truly died a human death. However, John does use these terms, blood and water, to describe life in Christ. He uses blood in John 6. He uses water in John 4 and John 7. So perhaps there is a link with the life that Christ gives. And he wants us to acknowledge that real spiritual life is available only through Christ's death. And even a casual student of Scripture can note the connection between blood and and mercy. As far back as the sons of Adam, worshipers knew. We read in Hebrews 9, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood. and Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. How Abel knew this truth is anyone's guess. But somehow he knew he had to offer more than prayers and crops. He knew to offer a life. 
He knew to pour out more than his heart, more than his desires. He knew he had to pour out blood. And with the field as his temple and the ground as his altar, Abel became the first to do what millions would imitate. He offered a blood sacrifice for sins. And those who follow form a long line. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Samson, Saul, David. They all knew that the shedding of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Jacob knew it too, hence the stones were stacked for the altar. Solomon knew it, and the temple was built. Aaron knew it, and the priesthood was begun. Haggai and Zechariah knew it. As a result, the temple was built again. But the line ended at the cross. What Abel sought to accomplish in the field, God achieves with his son. What Abel began, Christ completed. After his sacrifice, there would be no more sacrificial system. After Christ's sacrifice, there would be no more need to shed blood. Again, Romans 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The Son of God becomes the Lamb of God. The cross became the altar. Going back to Hebrews again, Hebrews 10.10, And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What needed to be paid was paid. What had to be done was done. You know, we sing a famous hymn. One of my favorites is Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. One of the most famous lines in that hymn is, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure Cleanse me from its guilt and power. This is referring to the death of Christ as overcoming both sins, guilt, and power. Jesus did not merely appear to die. He really did die. And his death accomplished something. Freedom from the bondage of sin for us. Again, we return to our responsive reading, Zechariah 13.1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And now John tells us why he wrote this. So that we would have faith, verse 35, that we would have faith. He writes, he who saw it is born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's pretty obvious that at this point, the truthfulness and accuracy of his own testimony means a great deal to John. He wants us to be absolutely sure that he is the one who saw what happened. He uses the perfect tense here, which stresses the continuing effectiveness of a past action. And that's really important because what John is telling us is that what was done then, what was completed then, what was finished then is still at work now. It's still effective today. And that means that Christ's death on the cross then is still changing lives today. 
And John is telling us his testimony is true. He says, I saw it. I saw it happen. I'm certain about it. I know it's true. I was there. I witnessed it with my own eyes. The Gospel of John is filled with countless little details and story after story that after a while makes you wonder why all this is here. You know, was John getting paid by the word or something? You know, filling in all this extra stuff? But it's for just this reason. It's the details that reveal that John was, in fact, an eyewitness to the life and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And John will say all this again about his testimony being true. John 21, near the very end of the book, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And what John has remembered and written down is not written just for himself, nor is it written without purpose, but it's written that you also may believe. It's the purpose of the witness, the purpose of the Apostle John, that the people who believe this, who read this, who hear this, come to faith because of it. In fact, that's the purpose of the whole Gospel of John, the whole book. John twenty thirty one. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. (coughs) He says in John 19 that you also may believe. (coughs) I'm not all better. He says again, John 20, so that you may believe. He wants us to know there is a divine purpose in these things. These things were foretold in the scripture. And therefore, these things happened. God is working out his purpose, a purpose foretold in the Bible. And all those things that were foretold are being fulfilled. And while you may read this passage and think that Neither of these things are really all that significant. They were, however, unusual. And the fact that they happened and that they had been foretold in the scripture makes them significant. It was common for the legs of the crucified to be broken, but that didn't happen to Jesus in accordance with the scripture. It was uncommon for the crucified to be pierced with a spear, but that did happen to Jesus in accordance with the scripture. These Old Testament passages point to two highly unusual aspects of Jesus' death, and they bring out the truth that the plan of God is being fulfilled. What God says will happen, happens. And therefore, Jesus dies on the cross for sinners. He dies in my place. He dies in your place. We call it substitutionary atonement. His life for our life. Many people don't like this doctrine these days. A lot of people don't like it. They say it's too gory, too scary, too bloody, too masculine, too violent, and altogether too much. But meanwhile, non-Christians in our culture 
seem to have an insatiable desire for this doctrine. The storyline of masculine sacrifice of one's life to save others out of love remains one of the most powerfully moving themes in pop culture. I don't know if you remember a few years ago when uh, Chronicles of Narnia came out as a movie, going to see it in the movie theater. I loved the movie. But it was amazing to sit there in the theater and watching this movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, and watch the reaction of what was largely a non-Christian audience to the figure of Aslan. If you remember, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story or the lion that represents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in the story, Aslan willingly and nobly lays down his life as a substitute for those he loves to save them from the rule of evil. And when that happened, the theater became quiet, became still. You could hear people trying to hold back the tears. Some were sobbing. Then the unbelievers who didn't know about all the symbolism were moved to tears. And later in the story, when Aslan returns to life as the victorious king, joy breaks out in the theater. People start cheering and clapping. Why? Because deep down, even though we're all sinners, we remain people made in the image of God. And God has set eternity in our hearts, and we cannot shake our yearning to be delivered from sin and suffering, evil and death, by a conquering hero who loves us enough to give us new life through his death. That's what Jesus did. And he did it for you. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us of the truth of your word the sovereign plan of God in this world. The truth that Jesus really did die. He paid the penalty for our sin. And he cleansed us. Father, we pray that we would understand, that we would believe this. That we wouldn't just read it, but that it would affect our hearts and our minds, that we too might be brought to faith, that our faith might be increased, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Do this for us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.